Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Jonah Berger. He is a marketing professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the international best-selling author of the books Contagious and Invisible Influence. He's a world-renowned expert on behavior change, social influence, word of mouth, and why products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. He's published more than 50 papers in top-tier academic journals, and popular accounts of his work often appear in publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Harvard Business Review. Dr. Berger's new book is called The Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. In this book, he breaks down how to figure out what is holding someone back from doing what you want them to do, and how to remove those barriers to make them more likely to go along with what you're trying to convince them of. We're going to talk about the zone of rejection and the area of acceptance and how your comments are maybe falling in the wrong zone and how to get those into the right zone so that your teenager will be more likely to go along with what you're asking. We're going to talk about how to find an unsticking point when you've reached an impasse with somebody and how these can help you break through difficult barriers in your communication. And we're going to look at the Tide Pod Challenge and why it backfired when Tide tried to get teenagers to stop eating their dishwashing detergent and what this tells us about influencing teenagers and people in general. Jonah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Your first book was Contagious, then you wrote Invisible Influence. They're both about how ideas spread, how people get influenced to do different things, and how sometimes that communication can be difficult. Dr. Berger, can you talk a little bit about how you started writing about this stuff? I think I've always been interested in human behavior, and in particular, applying the rich tools of experimentation and statistics and all these things from the hard sciences to these more social science questions. Um, uh, you know, uh, I did a senior research project on urban hydrology, and I kind of went to college thinking I might be an environmental engineer or would do something in the hard yeah. sciences sort of sort of space. I ended up taking a class on the intersection of science, technology, and society. Read an article about how the way we build buildings changes the way we raise our children. So the idea was something like, look, you know, when we live in one-story houses, we let our kids play out front because we can see them. But when um, we move to big apartment buildings, we don't want to let our kids out front because we can't see them anymore. And so it changes the way we read, raise our kids. And so huh, I said, huh, that's pretty interesting. I asked the professor kind of, you know, what, um, what other classes would they recommend? 
uh, they recommended social psychology and, and that kind of started my journey to human behavior. Um, you know, I took a bunch of classes in college, uh, read a book called The Tipping Point about sort of social uh, epidemics, became interested in why things kept on and started doing research uh, in the space. Ended up getting a PhD at Stanford and sort of studying these questions. And I think um, uh, you know, why people behave the way they do is not random. It's not luck. It's not chance. There's really a science behind it. And if we yeah. understand that science, we can live happier, uh, healthier, and, and more successful lives. So, you know, you already have a couple other books here. One of them is kind of about how ideas spread and catch on. Another one is about influence, how people are influenced to do things. And so then this one is about how to change anyone's mind. How is this different from the other two books? What made you feel like there was still a gap after your other two books that needed to be filled? Yeah. So the, my first book, uh, Contagious, came out a few years ago, and, and it kind of changed my life. So um, before that, I was mainly an academic. I wrote papers. I taught. Um, I did a little bit of consulting here and there, but sort of 95% of my time was research and teaching. Um, Contagious came out. Uh, it did a little bit better than I expected. Um, at this point, it's out in half a million copies um, in uh, over, I think, uh, 40 so countries uh, around the world. And I started getting calls from all sorts of companies and organizations um, asking for help. So uh, how can you get our product to catch on? How can we generate more word of mouth? We have a pro-social behavior. How can we get people to do it? within organizations? How can we make good ideas spread and bad ideas not? And so started working with everyone from, you know, the Googles, Nikes, and Apples of the world uh, to small startups. Um, but what I soon realized is that everyone had the same problem, um, which is they all had something that they wanted to change, right? So uh, for the folks that were in marketing and sales, they wanted to change the customer or the client's mind. Uh, for sort of leaders and employees, they wanted to change their boss's mind, organizational culture. Um, you know, parents wanted to change their kids' behaviors. Uh, startups wanted to change industries. Nonprofits wanted to change the world. Change was really hard. Um, all these organizations, all these individuals were pushing, they were pressuring, they were cajoling, and, and nothing was working. And so I started wondering, well, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds uh, and drive action, not by pushing, uh, but by doing something else. Um, and that's really where the journey behind the catalyst started. And so this book kind of takes persuasion and influence from a different lens. Instead of thinking about how you can move someone towards what you want them to do or how you can push them into doing what you want them to do, it's more about looking at what's stopping them from doing it already or why they haven't changed already and sort of removing those barriers or getting rid of those things that are holding them back. Where did this model come from and how did you sort of develop this, this approach? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I started working on this book basically when uh, we had our first child. And so I was not, I was not really a full, I was a parent in name only, I'll say, uh, to in some degree at the beginning of this, this book. Um, and so I thought a lot about these ideas as um, our, our first child, who's now uh, three and a half, um, was sort of coming into his own. Um, but, you know, even before I had this challenge with parenting, because he wasn't talking very much uh, when he was uh, six weeks or six months old, um, you know, I noticed that pushing wasn't working, right? Anytime we try to change things, you know, if I um, when in my exec ed sessions, I often ask executives, hey, you know, write something down that you want to change and write something down you've tried to do to change it. Over 98% of the time, people list some version of pushing. Yeah. Um, and the same is true with parents, right? You know, okay. when we 
when we think about what we want to achieve, I want to get um, my son or daughter to eat breakfast. I want them to get ready for school. I want my kid not to do drugs. I want them to get home on time. I want them to do their homework. We very clearly know what we want, and we assume the best way to get it is to tell them to do it, right? Do your homework. Please do your homework. Uh, if you're not going to do your homework, I'm not going to be able to you know, let you hang out with your friends Friday night. I'm going to take away your phone. We use rewards and punishments. We push, we push, we push. And it's clear why we think pushing is a good idea, right? If, if you're in a room and there's a chair and you want the chair to move, pushing the chair is a great way to get it to go. You push it in a particular direction and the chair goes that way. But when we apply that idea of pushing to people, there's one problem. Not only are people not chairs, but when we push people, they don't just go yeah, along, right. right? That son, that daughter, that colleague, that boss, that client, they dig in their heels. They think about all the reasons why we're suggesting is a terrible idea. Um, they come up with all the reasons why they don't want to do it. They push back. And so the more we push, the more mm. resistance uh, it encourages. And so what I started to wonder is, could there be a better way, right? Um, and interviewing, whether it's you know, top-selling salespeople or parenting experts, um, looking at um, you know, transformational leaders or hostage negotiators, again and again, uh, the same approach came up, right? What these folks weren't doing is they weren't pushing. They weren't adding more facts, more figures, more reasons, more rewards, more punishments. What they were doing was subtly different. Rather than saying, what do I want and how can I get someone to do that? Instead, they were saying, well, why hasn't this person changed already? What's stopping them? What's getting in the way? And by how understanding what's getting in the way, how can I mitigate it and make the change I want to see much more likely? So it's a cool approach. I let readers get through the book. There's, you know, you've got broken it down into these sort of categories or steps that you can follow. And one of the first things that you talk about in the book that I found really interesting is this concept of reactance. And specifically, you talk about the Tide Pod Challenge, which um, was, I guess, when a bunch of teenagers started eating dishwashing detergent pods because they thought that would be a fun thing to do. Um, but some interesting things happened when Tide started trying to get people to stop eating the Tide pods. So what happened with that and what does that tell us about um, influence and persuasion? Yeah, so as you alluded to, there are kind of five key barriers that I talk about in the book, uh, five key roadblocks um, or hurdles, whatever you want to call them, that often get in the way uh, of change. Um, and those are reactance, uh, endowment, distance, uncertainty, uh, and corroborating evidence. Uh, you put the five together and they actually spell word. Uh, that word is reduce, which is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They don't pressure. They don't come up with more facts or punishments or rewards. They figure out what the barriers are uh, and they, re they reduce them. Um, and so as you noted, kind of the first one, um, uh, which is reactance, um, uh, is uh, very relevant uh, to parents. Um, uh, and in particular, this funny example of the Tide Pod Challenge. And so um, as everybody knows, Tide Pods are these things that go in the laundry. Um, they're basically a little packet that you throw in. They're very colorful. They have all the chemicals in them. Rather than having to measure out the detergent, you just put a packet uh, in, the, in the laundry. It, it sort of set it and forget it. And so Tide, owned by Procter & Gamble, uh, spent over $100 million in marketing when they launched it, uh, and they thought it could take a big chunk of the over-billion-dollar laundry industry. The challenge was, as you noted, uh, people were eating them. 
Um, uh, and so, you know, there was a funny video online saying they looked good enough to eat. There were pictures of them melted on top of pizza. Suddenly, young people, mostly young people, were challenging one another to eat Tide Pods. It was called the Tide Pod Challenge. Now, imagine you're a Tide executive uh, in this situation, <laughs> right? Um, what would you do? Um, and, you know, they're sitting there going, well, people should know not to eat these, but just in case, let's remind right. them. Um, and so they did what a parent would do. They said, don't eat Tide Pods. Uh, and in case that wasn't enough, they hired a celebrity, uh, Rob Gronk Gronkowski, to do the same thing. They shot a public service announcement saying, don't eat Tide Pods. Is it ever okay to eat Tide Pods? No, 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 no. no, no. Okay. They, they did what you know health organizations and organizations have done forever. Right? When we want people not to do something, we tell them not to do that. We think that's the best way to do it, right? Um, you know, Stop pulling on your sister's leg. Uh, don't do drugs. Make sure to have the car back by 1030. When we want people to do something, we tell them not to do it. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the data, you see something interesting. Look at the searches for the Tide Pod Challenge, sort of going along. Uh, then um, uh, Tide tells people not to do it. They assume that will stem, no pun intended, the tide of people interested in the Tide Pod Challenge. But that's not what happens. Nope. In fact, searches go up uh, over fourfold, over 400%. <laughs> Visits to poison control uh, go up as well. In the next two weeks, more people come into poison control than had in the two years prior. <laughs> Essentially, a warning <laughs> recommendation, right? Telling people not to do something actually yep. made them more likely to do it. And this is sort of a silly example. Most, most parents listening to this probably aren't worried about their kids eating Tide Pods. But I think it points out a much broader phenomenon. Yeah. Right? Whether we're telling people to do something or telling them not to do something, it impinges on their freedom, their autonomy, their ability to see themselves as driving their own behavior. And so telling them not to do something often makes them more likely to do it, not, not less. Yes. And as you point out in here, sometimes even if you really did want to do the thing or you were planning to do the thing and then someone tells you you have to do it, then all of a sudden now you you just don't want to do it as much anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't feel so much like you want to do it. Or you maybe put it off. And I remember that as a teenager um, when my mom would tell me to clean up my dishes or tidy up my room. And I would have actually been planning to do that very thing and telling myself, oh, I really got to clean these dishes up. But then as soon as she said it, it was like, but I can't do it now because then I'll just be doing it because she told me to. So now I now I need to wait more. <laughs> Maybe I'll do it tomorrow or whatever the thing is. Um, and you actually point out in this book that um, that's a very real thing because we want to be able to tell ourselves that we're doing things for our own reasons or because we decided to and we don't want to think that we're doing it because someone else told us to. So I guess... It makes me wonder, well, so what can you do if you're, if you do need to tell somebody, you know, hey, clean up these dishes, this is getting bad. Um, how do you do that without triggering this whole reaction that's going to get them to um, avoid actually doing it? Yeah. So, so first let's talk about, and you alluded to this already, the underlying psychology. And I think we sort of hear this as parents and we think, oh, it's just reverse psychology. You know, right. um, we should tell them not to do what we want hey, them to do. Leave these do dishes lying around, please. <laughs> Don't clean these up. Yeah. The core idea is one of freedom and autonomy. We, everybody likes to feel like they are in charge. Yeah. Why did I buy a certain product, do a certain thing? I did it because I wanted to, right? I'm in charge. I'm in the driver's seat. I'm in control of, of my life. Yeah. Why am I doing my homework, cleaning my room, um, dating this person? I'm doing it because I want to do it. But immediately when my parents start saying, hey, do this, do your homework. Now it's no longer clear whether I'm doing it because I want to do it right. or because they told me to do it. Now it's no longer clear who's in the driver's seat. Essentially, 
people, easy to see in kids, but everybody has this, basically have an anti-persuasion radar. It's almost like a missile defense system that goes off when people feel like someone else is trying to persuade them and they engage in a number of defensive sort of countermeasures, right? So first is avoid or ignore it, right? I go to the next room. I don't, I don't listen to it. I delete the email or, you know, I leave the room when an ad comes on. But even worse is counter-arguing. We talked a little about this already. Sure, someone says something, and sure, it seems like our son or daughter is listening, but really what they're doing is thinking about all the reasons they don't want to do it, mm-hmm. all the reasons why what we're suggesting is a bad idea. They're sort of pushing back on it to maintain that sense of freedom and autonomy. And so to get to the question you asked, which is that what should we do, the key insight is we need to allow for agency. We need to stop crowding out their intrinsic motivation to do things, and we need to allow them to have freedom and control. Rather than trying to persuade them, we need to get them to persuade themselves. Rather than trying to sell them on what we want them to do, we have to get them to buy in. Now, I know that may sound a little bit like magic when I say it. Um, <laughs> it's not. I talk. Ooh, wouldn't that be great? In the book, I talk about four or five strategies to, to do it, but I'm happy to mention you know, one or two here. Right? One um, is simply what I'll call providing a menu. Right? Too often when we ask people to do something, we ask them to do something in particular. Do your homework, right? Yep. Uh, you know, uh, clean up your room, put away your dishes, um, don't do drugs. We tell them one thing in particular, yep. and what they're doing is they're sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't want to do it, mainly because they no longer have that freedom and control. And so what you see great change agents, what great catalysts do, is instead they don't just give people one option, they give them multiple. Yeah. Right? They say, uh, I want you to do X or Y. Which do you think is better? Right? If I'm a consultant, I'm making a presentation, I'm saying, well, hey, you could do X or Y. Which do you think is better? If I'm uh, in, my, in my dad's shoes right, um, and I'm trying to get my son to eat his dinner, I say, hey, which do you want to eat first? Do you want to eat your pasta or your meatballs? Right? Um, and what that does, right? I'm giving him a choice, um, and that choice allows him to feel like he is in control. Yeah. He's sitting there going, well, rather than sitting there going, I don't want to do what dad suggested, he's sitting there going, well, which do I want to do huh, first? Do I want to eat meatballs yeah. or my pasta? And because he's focused on that, he's much more likely to do what I asked mm. at the end of, of that request, right? Because I've given him that sense of control. And, and I call this providing a menu because it's not giving them infinite choices, not telling them to do whatever they right. want. It's giving yeah. them a limited set of choices, but it's guiding that journey. It's guided choice that encourages them to make a choice from the set that you've you've given them. Yeah, it's not what do you want for dinner. <laughs> it's uh, which of these things that we already cooked do you want to eat first? Yeah, but, but even that, right? Notice what you just did. It actually relates a lot to another thing I talk about, which is asking rather than telling, right? It's saying, well, hey, uh, which of these three things would you like to have for dinner? Or how much of each of these things would you like to have for mm-hmm. dinner? Now you've given them an opportunity to participate, right? If, imagine if you're setting curfew. You could say, hey, you need to be home at 10.30. What's your son or daughter going to say? They're going to say, oh, I don't want to be uh, home at 10.30. That sucks. All my friends stay out till midnight. Yeah. What if instead you say, hey, you know, what do you think is a reasonable time? You know, um, mm. uh, what are the things you need to do tomorrow? Oh, well, I have school and this and that. Okay, well, how much sleep do you usually need to be ready for school? I don't know, eight and a half, nine hours. Right. Okay, great. Well, what time do you think you then need to be home to um, have enough sleep to be ready for school tomorrow? And now what they've done, right? Now, first of all, you're not telling them what to do. You're asking right. them, and they're more than happy to think about the answer. But second, because they've come up with the answer, they're much more willing to commit to the conclusion. Mm. They've just told you they need nine hours of sleep. So it's much harder for them to go, well, hold on. I don't need to be home by 10 because they can do the math. They've told you they need nine hours of sleep. And so they go, well, I probably should be home by 10, 
right? And so by encouraging them to do the work, they're much happier to go along with you suggested because it's their idea, not yours, right? What great catalysts, great change agents are so good at is they're so good at giving others the power and make it feel like it was their idea, right? You don't care who comes up with the idea. You care about what the idea is. Give away that power. Allow others, allow your kids to come up with the great ideas, but guide them towards those great ideas. We're here with Dr. Jonah Berger talking about how to change your teenager's mind when change is difficult and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Right? What's so interesting about questions is if someone asks you a question, you have to think. If someone tells you what to do, you don't have to think at all. You don't have to come up with your own ideas. You don't have to internalize it. You don't have to figure out what you feel. Right? I think the challenge here as parents is sometimes you say, well, hold on, I don't want my kids to do drugs at all, right? And if they're smoking pot frequently, and I say, you know, rather than smoking pot once a day, smoke pot once every two days, they're still smoking pot. I don't want to smoke any pot. That's fine. Yeah, right. But that's focused on what you want rather than where they are. So they end up coming out with this campaign where they go up to people on the street, uh, smokers on the street who are smoking, and they ask them for a light. You would expect smokers to say yes, right? Smokers are often asked for a light and they often say yes, except this time they say no. Why do the smokers say no? They say no because the person who's asking them is an eight or 10 year old kid. So it's a little boy in a shirt with a monkey on it or a little girl in pigtails and they say, hey, can I have a light? And what the smokers say is no, right. no way. Of course you can't have a light. What do you mean you're eight or 10 years old? Mm. Don't you want to run and play? Smoking causes lung cancer and emphysema and all these different things. And at the end of the interaction, the kids give them a little slip of paper that says, uh, you think about me, but not yourself. Um, here's a number for a quick line. Mm. Okay? Um, and this campaign is hugely successful. So uh, there's over 40% increase in calls to the quit line. Uh, videos of the campaign go viral, get millions of views online. But what's most interesting is why this campaign works, right? What the Health Promotion Foundation realized is that information wasn't the issue. Smokers had all the information. Smokers right. knew that smoking was bad for them. And so giving smokers more information wasn't going to solve the problem. Too often, we think we're having focus on an information problem. That's not the problem. And they realize, hey, if we tell smokers what to do, they're going to push back. It's going to backfire. And so instead, what they did is they highlighted a gap. Right? People like to be consistent. If I say I care about the environment, I better recycle. If I say I care about a sports team, I better watch them on television. Right? I want my attitudes and my actions to line up. But when they don't line up, right, this notion of cognitive dissonance occurs. Right? It's a negative emotional reaction. And I do work to resolve that dissonance. I got to bring the two in line. In the smoker's case, you've just told a kid not to smoke and they've reminded you that you're smoking. And so now you're sitting there going, okay, well, I have two options. I can tell the kid to smoke, which is what I'm definitely not going to do, right. or I can be more likely to quit smoking myself, which is what 40% uh, of them did, right? And so mm -hmm. what highlighting a gap does, it encourages people to do the work themselves. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.